about 9.20 or so, time to start. Uh, last, week we, last week we began on page 85, and I think we talked for quite some time about the Sabbath, which I don't even know if that was, I don't remember if that was in that, this section or not. And then we jumped ahead to 107 to talk about the giving to the Spirit at creation, the nephesh, you know, the whole person, the neck, um, and then the, the connection there between Genesis 2-7, the breath of life, and then John 20 in the ordination of the apostles in the upper room. So we kind of missed everything from 85 to 107. So I actually didn't go any further in hopes that you might have some stuff in the midst of that. Some of you weren't able to get all the way through that last time. That's fine. Um, but maybe this week you were able to catch back up. So we can do anything from 85 to about one. You know, we can do anything from 85 to the end of the chapter, but specifically to about 115 or 117. So are there any, anything, any questions? First, anything from last week that bollocks you up, that you have questions about? I have a question, but it's not Uh, the default is there are no exceptions to the third commandment. So just, I mean, um, travel, and I realize people travel and, you know, you're out of the country or whatever, but they're they're really, it's not like he says go when you can and then when you can't go, that's all okay. He just says go and you can do one of two things. And this is how we often, you know, I just had confirmation interviews with the eighth graders yesterday. Well, here's Jesus running along. And you're part of his body, Romans 6. You actually reside in his flesh. So for Jesus, he can rejoice in that third word, remember the Sabbath. That's a good word for Jesus. Well, it's a good word for you too, and you can rejoice in that. And it's not a burden as long as, so long as you run with Jesus. But the minute you say, you know what, i got a better way, and so Jesus continues to run this way, and you decide to run this way, suddenly that third word becomes utter condemnation. So the question is, how best can you run with Jesus and rejoice in the third word? Well, go to church. And as Luther says in the Catechism, hear the preaching of the word, or go to church and gladly hear and learn from the preaching of his word. So it's not even just go, although it's better to go than to not go, but it's actually go and rejoice in it. Okay? Let me just finish, and then we'll get to you in just a second. So then, you know, there are exceptions to everything, or, or people, you know, it's like the emergency baptism. When's an emergency baptism? Well, there's an exception always. You know, people travel. What would be best is to find a church and go. Um, but if, it's, if we're not in, in fellowship with them doctrinally and, and specifically sacramentally, it's, it wouldn't be best to take the supper there. One, because you don't know if they have it. I mean, actually, if it's body and blood. And two, you know, there, are two reasons, there are two reasons to go to the supper or to not go. One is, there are two reasons why we don't let everyone come to the supper. One is we don't want it to kill them. And two is we don't want to make them liars. So let's just use a for instance. You've got... You've got um, Say you've got an ELCA Lutheran who comes in. That's probably not the best. You've got a Roman Catholic that comes in. They would certainly confess body and blood. So we're not going to kill them. What they couldn't confess is that they weren't going to be liars because the next week they go back to their parish and have the mass. It's the same thing with you. When you go out, you might confess body and blood, uh, but we can't make you a liar because the next week you're going to come back to us. And what you've done is, if communion is actually communion, and you're now joined sacramentally and tangibly and physically to those other people at the altar. If you go someplace else and come back in, 
if you can understand this in not a crude way, it's a bit like cheating on your spouse and coming back to your spouse. Because you brought someone else into the mix now. There's a third party involved. So that's why you wouldn't do it. It's best to go, but just gladly hear the preaching of the word and don't go to the supper. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they have a gazillion Lutheran churches. Um, we only found one Missouri Synod, and you know how I found them? I called up every Missouri Synod and I said, Hey, do you have a contemporary <coughs> service? And if they said yes, I hung up. So I finally found one, and it was downtown Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And um, we went to it, and we did have communion with them mm-hmm. because. Oh, it's great. If you can find someone who, who is in fellowship with you, um, and that's not, that's not always a matter of, st- of, of style, although style and substance go... The big problem with, with Lutheranism is that many will say style and substance don't go hand in hand. So as long as you teach the right stuff, it doesn't matter how you do it and it's all okay. Well, that's completely backwards. Style or substance impacts style and, and vice versa. Style is not the best word, but you know what I mean. But you wouldn't not take the supper just because someone has a band. Because you confessionally you are in agreement with them. But your point is a good one. Especially if you can find someone who you can rejoice in being there with. It's a great thing. That's the, that's the broader church. That's capital C. The church is bigger than the Missouri Synod. Yeah. Just real quick. Yeah. One more point on that. I visited my brother in Detroit suburbs. Oh, nothing good can come from Detroit. In the last week, suburbs. I'm from Detroit, so oh, I can say you? that. Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. From the suburbs. Where's he from? I, it's Washington. Oh, I think this church is in uh, Romeo. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, uh, I'm standing out in the hall, my brother and his wife are in choir, and, you know, this guy comes up to us, and I didn't even know he was a pastor. He didn't have a collar on or anything. And then we, when we go into the service, it was, um, I don't want to make a long story. I'll just make it real quick. They didn't have any liturgy. Literally, mm-hmm. they had a prayer. They had the scripture readings, which a lady stood up and read them. And then, um, then the, I don't know, they had presentations during it and everything. And when we did the creed, we didn't even do the creed. Now, thank goodness, they did not have communion. But I didn't even feel, I felt miserable, and I thought, oh, boy. I, what if I ever go up there and they have communion? I don't yeah. know that I would feel comfortable about going, what do you ever say about that? <laughs> yeah, well... It's a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, and my brother studied to be a minister all the way through Vickers. I can't believe they go to a church like that. Really? We're, well, um, <laughs> how did you know I was going to ask that? <laughs> that's a, that's right. Yeah. But then Carl and I reversed the curse. That's right. Um, Pastor Hess, I should say. That's more appropriate. Few is Carl. To the rest of us, he's Pastor Hess. Um, well, it's not about what you think or what you feel. It's about what the Lord says. So you can, you can rejoice in, although you're utterly uncomfortable, you can rejoice in the fact that if the, if the verba is spoken by a pastor, the supper is there. Okay? Verba are the words of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the night when he was betrayed took bread. It's the words of institution. Sorry. Verba just means words. 
So you can rejoice in the fact that if the words of institution are spoken, Jesus has promised to be there, regardless of what you think or you feel. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, that doesn't make it any easier. I mean, what you don't want to do is go to the supper and, like, you know, be angry at the people who are there, which is always a, a temptation in situations like that. I mean, if I, I think I've told, I think I've said it here. I grew up in a church for 20 years that had, it was, it was completely backwards. Biblically speaking, we had the supper before the sermon. And you know from the Emmaus account, the word comes before the supper. I mean, that's, Emmaus is the divine service par excellence. Jesus teaches on the road with the word. He says he opened the scriptures to them. And then what does he do after he's, after he's spoken a homily to them? He sits down and breaks bread and they have the supper. We always had the supper before the sermon. And that just, it irked me to no degree because it's utterly anti-Jesus. That's not the way Jesus works. But was it still a supper? Yeah, because we had an ordained clergyman up there who spoke the words and, and made it happen. Okay? I knew. I could see out of the side. <laughs> I knew. I'm still learning how to phrase things so I don't offend, you know. So, well, anyways, you had your hand up next, and then we'll go to the, yeah. Well, part of it is, well, uh, Abby would say, you just don't care. And there's a part of me that doesn't really care, and there's a part of me that thinks, well, go ahead. It's different. Well, that's a good question. You have to remember the sacraments, all the sacraments give you grace, but they, but they do so in different ways. Okay? So the difference is there's no mandate to baptize only those who know what's going on. There is a mandate in 1 Corinthians 11 that he who does not discern the body of Christ, well, it, yeah, it's Paul's exegesis on, or Paul's explanation of uh, our Lord's words in, in Matthew 26 in particular. Now, the question is, here's the root of the question, is what, is, what does it mean to discern? I, and I'll just show, I'll show my cards here, because, you know, of course, uh, I don't think discern is rationally discerning, like you have to be an adult who knows exactly what's going on and can be able to say, yeah, I know exactly what this means. When Jesus speaks, it happens, because our Lord did this in Matthew 26, and he did it all over the scriptures. Here are the other examples. Here's why. For the longest time, Lutheranism... And this is in our, and I'm saying Lutheranism because it's in our, it's in our official pastoral theology books, but it's wrong. And the problem is, no, no pastoral theology has been written since about the early 20th century. They would always say people that can't rationally discern, so someone who has Alzheimer's, um, developmentally disabled people, I mean, pick your thing, could not have the Holy Supper. But. But you know, if you actually use a Lutheran hermeneutic, that's a way of reading the scriptures, which means scripture interprets scripture. You know from 1 Corinthians 1, what St. Paul says is, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, meaning rational minds mean nothing anymore. And then he uses the word discern in the Holy Supper. So what does it mean to discern in the Holy Supper? It simply means to have baptismal faith which trusts the words of Christ. And so you're baptized into a confession, Kids are baptized Lutheran. They grow up in that confession. Entitled, entitled is a law word, but they are fully, um, they are fully members of the kingdom who should receive the body and blood of Christ. Which is why I think the communion age should be even lower than what it is. Uh, in the early church, when you were baptized, you got the supper. It didn't matter what age you were, because you were entitled to the supper. Entitled is not the right word. You were, you were gifted with all the gifts of the Lord. 
Because they took that, that discern there in Paul, not as, I sit down with the book and I've read all the scriptures and i got it all figured out. They take it as, faith says, this is the body and blood of Christ. But you're baptized into that confession, which a Baptist would not be. So it's different. Okay? Who had their hand up next? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to default to Norman Nagel because no one can argue with me then. And if you do, you've got a beef with Nagel, not with me. Nagel would say, are they really ordained? Meaning, does the practice of their church, is it really an ordination where the Lord delivers the spirit through the laying on of hands for a specific task? For instance, we've got good friends down at College Church. Todd Wilson is a phenomenal pastor down there. Young guy, PhD from Cambridge. Um, never been ordained because that's not the practice of their church. At least for him, it's not. Now, for some, there's a difference between, at least in his, in his vocabulary, between a pastor and a reverend. Regardless, he preaches on Sunday. They have the Holy Supper once a, once a month sometimes. There's a difference uh, between them and us. Here's why. Through the laying out of hands and the confession that this delivers this Holy Spirit for this specific task, that's the difference. So think about in the broad scheme of things, who has that? Rome. Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, and, and I think Episcopalians or Anglicans would confess the same thing. Outside of that, who do you have? You'd be hard-pressed to find people that say it's a sacramental act where the Lord delivers the Spirit through the laying out of hands, and this man, he's different than he was before. So take that group of people who have it, Orthodox, Lutherans, whatever, Roman Catholics, Anglicans. Yeah, they all have the supper, so the first part is okay. We're not going to kill you. The second part, we don't want to make you a liar. That's the tough part. That would be the joy of having one holy Catholic and apostolic church which wasn't divided up by denominations. Denominations are of the devil. (laughs) They just are. So do they all have the supper? Yeah, they do. We can't take it there because we're not, we, we, we have so many other confessional disagreements that would actually break the bonds rather than bring the bonds together. Yeah. I mean, maybe more because Mark grew up Baptist and still will go back to his home church. And if they do have communion, which is seldom, mm-hmm. um, it's always, you know, examine yourself, mm-hmm. take this bread and eat of it, and know that, yeah, I mean, know that you're obedient to God. It's not even like, you know, this is my body. Right. Yeah, well that, I mean, that's, that's part of it, too, is their confession of the supper is different. There are really three, there are really three confessions. One is, um, you know, here's the altar, and here's Christ in heaven, and he's not there. So the supper does this to you. It pushes you upwards towards heaven in remembrance of Jesus. So it's all about the key words they focus on there is this do in remembrance of me, right? You let your souls ascend to heaven, as some, as some Protestants say. The other thing is... Uh, Christ is in heaven with his body, and yet uh, somehow spiritually he's present in these things called bread and wine. But it's not, it's not a physical, tangible presence. You still just eat bread and wine. And then there's the third category where here's the altar, here's bread, and here's wine, right? 
And here's Christ, and what he does is he actually comes down and puts himself into bread and wine. So when you eat this, when the pastor speaks the verba, this is no longer bread and wine, but it's body and blood. There is a change in the elements. To say that there's not a change is really not to be a Lutheran, and Lutherans are kind of scared of that language of change, but there is a change. It's no longer just bread and wine. It's actually body and blood. Now, here is where Lutherans and Roman Catholics are similar in what it is. It's body and blood, and how it happens, the Lord speaks. Where they're different is, Rome says you offer this back up to the Father, and Lutherans say it's all for you, it's all pure gift. So sacrifice versus sacrament. So we are, this is why I said Rome, Orthodox, Anglicans, Lutherans, we're all here. The Lord speaks and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. What, what you then do with it is the difference. For us, it's pure gift. For Rome, it's a sacrifice. That's why he says, you know, Lord, let the sacrifice be acceptable in your sight at a Roman Mass. Uh, in prayer and in the lifting up of the... Yeah, yeah. It would be. It would. Specific. I mean, uh, actions that you can see would be they would lift the host and the chalice actually above their shoulders and offer it back. So it would almost be an offering like this, as opposed to what you see we do. You hold it right in front of you so everyone can see Jesus. Nope. What happens is the priest sacrifices the Mass. Boom. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it's body and blood. You offer it up to the Father. Father, here's the body and blood. And then he takes it and puts it in his people. So it's the sacrifice and then he puts it in them. What happens in a Lutheran church is we say, the Mass happens. Our Lord Jesus Christ, boom, Jesus comes to the altar and you put it right in the people. So you just take the middle step out, which is the sacrifice back. It's basically... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. That's right, but this is not a sacrifice. And there is here's the difference. There is uh, this is way off the book, but it's good. Um, we're not going to get any further than page eighty-five today. <laughs> There is a different, there, there is a sacrificial nature to our Holy Supper. That doesn't mean it's a sacrifice. The sacrificial nature is, as St. Paul says, Jesus always stands before the face of the Father with his wounds. Or as, you know, Pastor Bruzek's favorite theologian, Charles Wesley, says in his great hymn, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, gaze we on those glorious scars. Jesus doesn't lose his sacrificial scars. In fact, he always presents himself before the Father on behalf of your sins. And that even happens when we say the body of Christ. It's the body that's pierced. It's always present, presented before the Father. There is something sacrificial about it. But, we're not, but we let Jesus do that. What Rome says is we take these things and we're going to offer it back up to you because the death of Jesus was not quite all of it. Now we've got to offer it back up. So they say it's an unbloody sacrifice. Jesus is re-crucified in an unbloody way. Well, that's not what happened. He's actually not re-crucified. He's always standing there with his, cruci- with his crucified scars. So this is like tending the details. The details are just a bit different. Is there a sacrificial nature to our supper? Yes. Is it a sacrifice? No. 
let Jesus do all the verbs, and he doesn't get to do all of them there. Lord, let this sacrifice be acceptable in your sight. We the, and, and in fact, it says stuff like, we the people offer this up before your face. Who's doing the verbs? And that's not the bad part. In fact, in the ELCA hymnal, that's in there. That's very ancient where the people bring in the gifts. I mean, listen to what we sing. Uh, we, what's the offer? Yeah, right. There is a set. In fact, bringing in the gifts for the supper is not wrong. The people always supply the gifts, the bread and wine, and then the Lord transforms it into body and blood and he puts it into you. Problem is, there's, there, that's not the bad stuff. It's once it's transformed, then what do they do with it? The first thing they do is offer it back up. And, and this is Schmeyman in his Eucharist book, which is very good. He says the sacrifice goes up to the Father, and he puts it right back down in his people. But there's still the action of the people on behalf of the congregation. Who, you, all you have to ask, this is the only question in theology, is who does the verbs? That's it. And if there are any verbs on your behalf when the Lord's about to deliver his forgiveness, it's not quite there yet. That's right. On behalf of the congregation. That's right. That's right. Because I question, you know, as we've been on the way about the use of Isaiah sacrifices. Mm-hmm. And very adamant that no, we're yeah. the ones and you read like official church dogma and you then listen to Catholics or to priests or even to the new Holy Father and not all of it adds up. What's striking is Benedict Benedict XVI was actually, to a certain extent in his own life, a Luther scholar and actually loves Luther. So he's, I mean, even his whole doctrine, and this is off the topic even more, but even his whole doctrine of purgatory has completely changed. It's different than what it was with John Paul II and in fact, it's very close to what Luther says about a Christian dying. That you're, that you're actually purged in your death. That's what Luther says. Death is the last great purging. That's Luther. Benedict says, you're purged in your death and you go to heaven. So that's, that's off the topic. But my point is, what actual individual Catholics believe is sometimes different than official church dogma. But all we can go on confessionally is not what your cousin believes, but what the church actually confesses. Yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Anglican is um, Church of England. They're, they're, well, you know, here's the thing. That, uh, you know, here's the thing about Anglicans. Let me just tell you this, and then we'll put, you, you don't ever know really where they're at. Okay? They're very sacramental and liturgical, and at the same time, they're very reformed. So you just don't always, meaning it's kind of, if you, if you don't really know, yeah. You let Carla, Carla was a former, and I don't want to say anything because I don't want to offend anyone, but let Carla answer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you go ahead and then... I had a question about why 
No difference. Here's, here's the reason why. Your offering is going to go to pay for the bread and wine that we're going to use at the supper. So if you want to bring up the bread and wine, that's one less thing we have to purchase. <laughs> you can either bring it up or we'll take the offerings and pay. There's no difference. In fact, you know, think about this sometime. People get bent out of shape when the host is elevated so people can see Jesus. But no one gets bent out of shape when pastors elevate the offering bags. Now, the Lord says that's filthy mammon. <laughs> but we elevate it. But we can't elevate the body of Christ. So is there a difference in bringing up the bread and wine and the offering? No. Same thing. Yeah. Well, we could. It's actually not a bad practice. It's very historic. In fact, if you go to, if you go to, um, to Africa today, you'll see at the supper they'll bring up, they'll bring up uh, bread and wine. They'll bring up chickens. They'll bring up everything that they're going to use to help support this congregation. So, you know, up in the chancel, then the priest takes these chickens, and, he take, and they're, you know, making noise, and he puts them off in the vestry. And that's, they bring up eggs. They bring up bread. They bring up cheese. They bring up whatever, and that's what they do with it. Go ahead. It's not a physical presence. It's just Jesus is everywhere and now he's going to be here. It's a spiritual presence. And here's the thing. There's no forgiveness with a spiritual Jesus. You notice when he forgives people, he does things in concrete, tangible, life-giving ways. So water, right? He actually speaks a living voice. You have to have, you have, to have someone speak at you who, who has a body and flesh. You can't, you can't have a recording in your car that says, I forgive you all your sins and know that you're forgiven. Just like you probably don't want to go to confession over the phone. <laughs> People laugh. Actually, I heard this on a, on a radio show. Someone called in and said, is that okay? And the priest said, no, you need a body there to put hands on your head. It's all about a concrete, tangible presence. So we can all say Jesus is there. The question is, is he there for you? And you don't know that unless he's there in a tangible, concrete, physical way. Well, and the, yeah, there's always doubt, and the chief pastoral concern is the comfort of the terrified conscience. If you don't know that Jesus is there with his flesh and blood to put into your mouth, you may not have the comfort of the terrified conscience. And if there's any question, you can't do it. So are they wrong that Jesus is there? No, Jesus is always there. But is he always there for you? You don't know that unless he says, take, eat, this is my body, and it is his body. And the other thing is, it just denies the witness of Scripture insofar as whenever Jesus speaks, it happens. It actually happens. Uh, let's go to Donna, and then we'll go to you. Is that okay? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Are you are you asking if you go to a Catholic mass and take it, are you forgiven? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yes, as do we. What is what is this is the, 
This is actually very good. This is actually a very, that's a very good comment. That's very, that's very, um, you're very attentive to kind of the details, and that's good. Too often people aren't attentive to the details. What you're, I think the point you're trying to make is they go in order to get forgiveness, and that seems like they're doing the verbs. You go to church to get forgiveness. The question is, what's the difference between grace and forgiveness? When the Lord delivers, it's the exact same thing. So if the motivation, I agree, might be skewed. The motivation might be skewed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Luther's got this great line where he says, if you're worried about your salvation or your sins, don't flee to the cross. Flee to the sacraments to get forgiveness. So why do, you go, why do we go to... Yes, it is the act. Yeah, it is. Yes. Yes, that's right. So you get it again. You get forgiven new every week, right? Yeah, but we don't have to do But you wouldn't want to do without it. Okay, have to. I, that's right. When you, when you set it up in terms of we don't have to, that's, if you ask do we have to, that's not the right question. The right question is what does the Lord promise? He says when you come... I'm going to forgive you. So you come. And, and you don't get forgiven that in the same way that week. That's why, that's why the third commandment is so crucial, because what does the Lord do there? He forgives your sins anew. Reassurance is, uh, assurance, it, you, too bad Burkholz isn't down here. Assurance is not a biblical way of speaking, per se, and it's not a Lutheran way of speaking. Lutherans speak of, what does the Lord do and what does he grant? He puts his body in blood, and he forgives me. To reassure is to take away the, the concrete, tangible reality that he actually does it again. So it's more than assurance. I do take your point, though, that we need to, we need to tend the details about who's doing what. That's very good. The motive. That's right. But I think if you were pressed hard, you'd say, why do you come to church? To get my sins forgiven. This is Matt Harrison's great thing. Why do I come to the supper? This is, and it's Luther. That's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, what happens on the cross, yeah, on the cross, Jesus dies for your sins, but they're not given to you unless you come in contact with the means of grace. So you have to come in contact with the means of grace, which are the sacraments. Good point, though. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, that's a good... Here's the cross. This is Donna's point. Here's the cross, and here's forgiveness. Objectively, entire world, right? But the question is, that if that's the point, how does Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam, Eve, how do all these people get forgiven? Here's the Lutheran answer through the sacrifices. Because what happens is, although the death of Jesus is maybe 2,000 years off, 
that death is actually applied this way into the sacrifices. So Luther then says, the, sacrifice, the sacrifices of our fathers in the faith are not actually sacrifices, they are sacraments. So when they go to the Old Testament and slaughter a lamb, that was a sacrament, because the death of Jesus was applied to them via the lamb. You don't get the forgiveness, though, unless you killed the lamb. Just like the great, uh, the great Lenten hymn, Not All the Blood of Beasts, there's that one line, My faith would lay its hands on that dear head divine. In the Old Testament, you'd actually take your hands, and the, the same word used for pressing your hands on the animal is the word that's used for Solomon pressing on the colonnades. Think about the strength. You put your hands that hard on the animal and deliver the sins to the animal, and the animal was then slaughtered, and you got the forgiveness of Christ. Well, we're the same thing. We're just 2,000 years this way. There's no difference. How do you get it? You don't have to slaughter animals anymore. Now you come, and there's bread, and there's wine, or there's a font, eight-sided font, right? It still has to be delivered. Jesus dying on the cross isn't enough, if you can understand that in a gospel sort of way. It's not enough until it gets at you. Until it gets at you. So where does it get at you? The question is, where do I get it? You've got to come to church and, and get the gifts. Are you forgiven? Yeah, only because he's baptized you. But to baptize you and say, well, I, I don't always need to come in contact with the sacraments is a bit like saying, we had a kid who was healthy, but we haven't fed him for 12 years. Well, eventually... Yeah. And... and and all those imperatives, go to church, and all those things, are actually gospel words once you're in Christ. We've talked, and we've talked about this quite a bit at Joy Group, when imperatives are transformed. So why do you go to church? This is our initial comment about running with Jesus. You don't go to church out of compulsion, but you go, and that's a gospel word. So do people go for the wrong reasons? People go for the wrong reasons here. <laughs> I mean, they go for the wrong reasons every place. But to, to get at the motives of their heart is probably a loser's game. What you need to do is say, where does the Lord promise it? And here's where it's at. But I, I always love that you tend the details. And I, lo- I love that about you. By the way, I've got your quote on, on Virgin, or the Virgin Mary. So I'll give it to you afterwards. What else? Oh, yes. Save me, Jill. Come on now. I was going to save you with my original question. Come on now. No. Forgiveness of sins, then is it a different level of forgiveness? Nope. I, I mean, nope. I never of. nope. Okay. And just like people say in the new member class, you're saying that I get a, a better forgiveness in private absolution. That's not it. Okay. It's the same Lord, one Lord, one faith, one bat, same Lord who delivers himself in different ways. Now, the, the wrong question is to say, well, then I, what do I need? How much do I need? The right question is to say, what all has the Lord promised and how can I get at those? So people who say, I don't need to go to private confession because the Lord forgives me in church. That's the wrong way of looking at it. The right way is, what has the Lord said? He gives to his pastors to forgive sins, and where is that offered? Privately, publicly, at the supper, at baptism, in preaching. How can I get a hold of all of those? He's just got more gifts to give. Are we moving toward private confession? Well, you should have been at the first home meeting. We were at Carol Holter's house, and the question was, this came from, and I don't know who it was because they're all anonymous. The person asked, will you guys ever, and it was, not, it was not a question to accuse us. It was actually a question of wanting to do it. When are you guys going to set up time so people can come in and have private confession and absolution? 
Now, the answer is, you know, one, it's always a bit awkward doing it in your office. You should really do it in the Lord's space. Um, but should there be times? Yeah, there should be, because that's the way the Lord works. John 20, forgive sins, don't forgive sins. And that's also the way the church has always functioned. In fact, the, the great, this is Luther's great catechism answer. When I urge you to private confession, I simply am urging you to be a Christian. So private confession is not some Roman practice that St. John Lutheran likes to do. It's actually, it's a practice all the way back to the time of Jesus. Probably isn't best. That's right. That's a good question. It's not best. It's not best. You can always get in. I will, I will cancel anything if someone wants to come to private confession. Okay, now here's the first question. We have not looked at the book at all, and, you know, Bruzik's going to kill me if he comes down here next week and we're still on page 84. <laughs> all right, go ahead. If anybody, yeah, if anybody's slower, it's him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. To accept as I get older. But you know, you used the word like entitled a couple of times earlier. And I know it's not the best word, and yet I think sometimes to other people we have this sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And then it's difficult to talk about community mm-hmm. in, in the broader sense of the word. It, yeah. That's, I struggle with that. Yeah, entitlement is not the best word. A better word is uh, I mean, it's like, it's like when you're circumcised as a kid in the Old Testament. It's not that you're now entitled to sit at the feast, but now you're given the opportunity. Entitlement is not a gospel word, and you hear it all the time. You know, um, but I think that's a perception. I mean, I think it's like, yeah. I see it Yeah. That's true. And now we need the Emma, Eden, and Jesus story. Okay? Because I don't let Emma go to the medicine drawer. Because I know that although those medicines are very good, if I give it to her and she's not ready, or I give it to her and she's, and she's, uh, and she's not sick, it's going to kill her. So what the problem is, is too often people understand, or people think of... Um, pastoral admonishments or pastoral limitations like you're a Baptist, we can't let you commune here as aren't you a mean guy or I mean pick your word, whatever you want to call it or you're not really saved or whatever when in actuality people need to see the, see the words of St. Paul and say, here's the best thing a person can say wow, you don't want to kill me and you don't want to make me a liar, you must really love me they're not entitled to it 
And for us to say don't come is not a word of condemnation. That's a word that actually builds and strengthens community. But people don't see it that way. Yes, I know. Yes, we were, Ann Williams and I just drove out with Martha and Pastor Nelson to a Catholic church to look at in Waterford, the one your mom recommended. Was your mom here last week? Was that your mom? I thought it was your mom. She's a nice woman. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, no, I, she, I can see why you're so kind now. Sorry. Well, if I just said, she was she here last week and didn't say any more, you'd think, well, what does he think about my mom? She's a nice woman. <laughs> <laughs> We're out at this Catholic church last week, and um, and I made some I made some we were we were they were selling some some liturgical accoutrements, and I said to the guy, to the priest, I said, "Hey, in the Lutheran church, we have to have a voters' assembly for everything, because you know everyone's a minister and everyone gets a vote, right?" So I said, "We need to have a vote on everything." I don't know how it works here, and the secretary stops me and says, "He is the vote." Now, she wasn't, in fact, she rejoiced in that. She said, I don't have to make these decisions. He's the vote, because he's the priest, and that's what he does. Rome has a unique understanding of authority, and there are, there are people just like us in, in Roman Catholic churches that are angry about authority. We don't need a pope, we don't need bishops, I don't need a priest, I can do what I want. But I think, broadly speaking, they rejoice in authority more than we do. The chief virtue in any Christian, I am convinced of this, I would, I would die over this virtue, is obedience. That is not a law word. It's not oppressive. You know, that's why, that's why in, the great, um, in the great prayer, right after you get your, your call at the seminary, that the seminary president, who's really the bishop of the seminary, stands up and gives you this pastoral exhortation. And it says, it's just the words of St. Paul, don't lord it over the flock but be willing to give up your life for. Well, yeah, every father and, and every husband of every house has authority over the rest of the family, but that authority is given to die for the family. The problem with, with, with I think, the Lutheran church oftentimes is we see obedience is not a gospel word and like we're out to get people when in actuality, if you have good pastors, and, I, and believe me, I realize bad pastors totally throw this off, but if you have good pastors... You should rejoice in obedience. You know, Carl's congregation, Pastor Hess's congregation, should say, we have a great pastor. We're going to do what he asks because he's the guy. He stands in the stead of Jesus. And to not do that is to run against Jesus because Jesus is the head and the church is the body. And so if you say no to your pastor, you can't separate your pastor from Jesus. To say no to your pastor or I'm not obedient to you is to take yourself outside of Jesus. And there... um, you know, you often wonder if someone can be disobedient to their pastor and still go to heaven because you're really being disobedient to the Lord. That's a real-life question. Um, so if everyone could understand obedience as a gospel word, the church would be great. The problem is we don't all understand it that way. Mm-hmm. And 
America is where, I don't know, probably at least 90% of the denominations are the ones that are going to win. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, it's because it stops with the Lord. Right, right. And to separate the pastor from the Lord, I mean, there are great heresies that, that, that do those same thing. They separate the pastor. That's, that's totally anti-Jesus. If you actually stand in the stead and by the command, you can't say, that's my pastor and that's the Lord. They're one and the same. The pastor steps outside of what the Lord wants to do. Exactly. Yeah. He is a man. Yeah. That's right. Completely agree. You have, yes, and here, and let me say two things. Well, I want to get one of those chairs. Can we get one? That's not what they would say. In fact, the Holy Father, just so you know, goes to confession every morning because he's such a sinner, he claims. Now, I agree. No, I think they, I, well, well, here's the thing. This gets back to your question or to your comment. What throws all this off is when you have pastors who screw up big time. And every church has had pastors who screw up big time, Right? That's just who we are. I mean, that's just, that's just fallen. But you can't let a past pastor's mistake screw up how you view authority now. So if, you know what I mean? There's, there, are, there are times and there are places to be obedient. And there are also, and, and here's the other thing. This is kind of, the, this is where the buck really stops. There might be a pastor who is, who you think is not doing the right thing. That's fine. But at the end of days, you don't have to give account for what went wrong. But he does. So every soul that is lost, every soul that is condemned, every, every member that was destroyed, through his actions, he has to give account for on the last day and not you. So here's, this, is, this, is the great, this doesn't mean you never say, boy, I can't believe my pastor divorced his wife. That doesn't mean you don't say that. What it means is you say, but here's the, here's the great comfort that I have. He has to give account for thousands of souls, and I don't. No, there's no levels of forgiveness. I'm just speaking. Yeah. And it was like, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't never read our Bible on our own. Exactly. That's what they're saying because Paul compliments the Bereans. That's right. Being faithful in, in double checking all the apostles. Uh, so we still do that. But and wouldn't it be, know, just, just imagine for a moment, go ahead. No, go ahead. 
Just imagine for a moment how great the church would be if we were defined by not what we disliked about our church or our pastors, but about what we loved. And, and, and part of that is we're a product of the Reformation, where we were defined by something that went wrong. And yet, if you read Luther, more often than not, he's defined by what he loves. We love the Eucharist. We love, we love Mary. We love all these things. That's who we are as Lutherans. This, we would have a whole different world if Lutherans were not defined by what we hate, but by what we love. Authority would become a gospel word. So just begin to think that way. I mean, you always try to urge people, and that's, scare, that's the reason scare came, to be quite honest. Scare gets that to a T. That Lutheranism is not wrong. In fact, it's very right. The problem is we're always defined by what we dislike. Let's think about what we love. Rachel. Uh, it's almost 10.15. 10.15. I think that clock is a little slow. Yeah, yeah. Let's pray and let's go. Um, there is. A couple, I mean, a couple, there are. There's, there's a bishop of the district, Dan Gilbert, who, by the way, wasn't the bishop when all this happened. Dan Gilbert, let me just say this. He is, he is phenomenal. He is so good, and he understands what Lutheranism is, and he wants to dispense the forgiveness of sins. He wants to be in congregations. He gets it. He is a good, good, good guy. And, and frankly, the bishops we've had before that have all been good guys as well. I wasn't around. I have no idea what, what the decision-making process was. Are there higher authorities who should maybe exercise that authority? Yeah. Is divorce wrong? Yes. Can everyone be forgiven? Yes. I think, you, I think we just said, you know, we can't, I can't say any more just because I, I, I don't even know him. But I take your point. That's, yeah, right. Yes. Yes. Well, this is the great, this is the great line. Is it, the, is it the centurion that says, I know what it is to be in authority and what it means to be under authority. Here at this church, we're in authority, and yet we're under the authority of Dan Gilbert who's under the authority of Gerald Kieschnick, the bishop of the whole synod. So, I mean, that's, that's a great joy for me because I know I've got someone I can go to and say, hey, buddy, and I don't, I mean, I don't call him Dan. He always writes Dan, and that's not who he is to me. He's a bishop. And so I can go to him and say, this is what we got cooking. What do you think we should do? Or he should be the guy that pastors go to confession to. Aren't the elders of this congregation watching you? Yeah, they are. Um, but the, but the elders aren't in authority. No. But they are watching. They are wa- believe me, they're watching. I mean, wouldn't if they discerned a stray? As a Christian, they should just say, "What's going on?" Yeah. Well, right. Plus, Al Lovitch is in charge. So when Al Lovitch is in charge, 
No one screws around when Al Lovitch is in charge. Believe me, the meetings are orderly, they're fun, we get done quickly, everyone's happy. You need a couple more witnesses. It's not, it's not Matthew 18 in the sense you go one-on-one. Actually, when it's a pastor, the ante's been upped, and you actually need two people. Um, because people try to... People try to... I was going to use a different word, but you're right. People try to, people try to skew things their way, and, and the easiest person to get at is a pastor. To be quite honest, that's the easiest person to... Some, some people make it their life's goal to, to skew pastors. Not you. I, that's why I love you. No, not you. But some people make that their goal. And the problem is it's so easy. We've got a question on the book, I think. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, what page? Seventy-six. I don't think I read that page. Yeah, we started on... Go ahead. Adam, that's the word. Well, I am be- we're becoming a green home. Actually, Abby's more adamant about this than I am. She, uh, we bought all these lights. I'm actually convinced that the lights last longer, which for me, it's totally a financial thing, and oh, yeah. I'm okay with it if I, if I can save some money. Um, everything can be taken to an extreme. You could make yourself out to be a naturalist, and this was always the complaint against St. Thomas uh, or St. Francis of Assisi, who all creatures of our God and King, he wrote. It was like, the complaint against St. Francis always was he loved the trees and the animals and the birds and all of this stuff more than he did Jesus. Well, no, what happens is he was a devout Christian who then saw the presence of Christ in the sacraments and that life and that the whole cosmos, even birds and animals and trees and everything, had been redeemed by the death of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. He doesn't just mean you. He means all of creation has been redeemed. Even the grass has been redeemed. So if you begin to see life that way, I'm in Christ, Christ redeemed this, which probably influences the way I live my life on this earth. So, you know, are you going to go to hell if you drop, you know, a, a gum wrapper out of your pocket? No. But if you remember to pick it up and pitch it, that's probably a good thing. So the problem is people take it to the extreme. If you start with, with nature and move to Jesus, you got it all backwards. If you start with Jesus and move to how I live my life, you're fine. So start with Jesus. Tell your kids not to kill bunnies, you know. Unless you've got to eat. And if you've got to eat, then kill a bunny. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, Donna. One more. Then, we, then we'll have to wrap up. 
What page? Okay, I think I read that. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what he's talking about there is he's saying that Jesus gets his hands dirty in creation and he does, quote-unquote, miraculous things. I think often we think of miracles as, you know, a guy died and somehow he came back to life with no paddles. You know what I mean? When really, I think we said this a couple weeks back, every absolution is a miracle. You and I are damn sinners, and yet we're completely forgiven and renewed in the image of Christ. And actually, yes, we're renewed in the image of Christ. Every Eucharist is a miracle. Bread and wine become body and blood. That's a miracle. Just like water changed the wine. The fathers always used the water to wine as kind of a a support text for the Holy Supper. Just as he changed water to wine, so too does, does he change wine to his own blood. Or they would say, if he can do this, why can't he do that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell us a page. Is it page 98? <coughs> How about we do this? Why don't we wait till next week? We'll start, yeah, remind us. I don't know who will be here, but remind us that we'll start with the signs. Two weeks. Is that okay? All right, thank you. All right, why don't we close. um, Let's close with the Our Father, and then we'll be on our way. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hey, thanks for coming.